So we're going to keep diving into uh, this conversation that we've been having for weeks that I, I've really, really enjoyed because I find it um, a profoundly unique way to look at the scriptures. We're looking at questions that Jesus asked and, uh, and what it might mean to hear them either in a new light or to hear those questions asked to us. We're not going to do this for 300 weeks, but Jesus asks over 300 questions in the, uh, in the Gospels. And so there is plenty to choose from and to draw from. Uh, but before we get into this week, or as we get into this week, um, it's been said that Jesus designed us to be a body. Um, but we rearranged ourselves into a pyramid. And um, I don't know if you understand what, what we mean by that, but, but Jesus designed us to function in a certain way. And there is this temptation within us to change that function, to change that design of the body of Christ and to turn it into something where there is a struggle to gain an upper hand, to gain an upper position. And it happens in the world. It happens often in our relationships. It certainly also happens in the church. So we're going to look at a story that challenges some of the assumptions and, uh, and hopefully we're going to look at it in some new ways. Um, today and it's it is the story um, that is well known in many of our uh, experiences if you've grown up in the church from John 13 and in this story Jesus is in the upper room the room where he shares his final meal uh, with his disciples on the weekend that he dies on the weekend that he's crucified and so so this is um, an incredibly important time in the Gospels. They've been culminating the entire, each, each Gospel culminates to this event, and certainly John's Gospel does. And so, so what ends up happening is Jesus, um, we're told in the other Gospels, he, he sends his disciples ahead to go ahead and find a place where they are um, to, to prepare a meal. The Passover meal was a big deal. It was, um, it was a ritual. It was a ceremony, um, and it began the uh, the, the festivities of the Passover celebration. Uh, and so this was a time where they remembered God's faith. Jewish people would share a meal that would help them symbolically remember God's faithfulness. And we won't get into all of that. But in addition, every time that there was a meal shared, every time the guests came into a house, there was also um, a, uh, a, a practice that would happen. And, and this, this practice was called foot washing. Okay, and it sounds pretty much like it was. And so what would happen, um, this is just a quick, a quick crash course um, to get us all up to speed, but um, you'd be walking around all day on dusty, muddy, dirty roads, either in bare feet or in sandals, and you'd get into a house, and obviously your feet would be caked with maybe dust, but maybe other things uh, that come from horses and donkeys that were also sharing the road. And so it was, it was customary and standard that when you entered a residence or a room or a house, there would be a servant there, and that servant would take your feet and wash your feet off with a bin of, of with a basin of, of water um, and a pitcher of some sort um, and, and dry them off. And then you would kind of be prepared to enter into the house. It was a sign of hospitality, but it was also commonplace. So within that, let's talk about the roles of disciples and rabbis real quick. And the roles of disciples and rabbis was that a disciple or a rabbi would be a, a teacher that would have a small group of disciples, younger people usually, who were learning the ways of the, of, of the rabbi, and they would follow that rabbi around. Um, and they would not just learn the rabbi's teaching, but they would see what the rabbi modeled, and they would try to imitate that. 
they were also responsible for caring for the rabbi. They served, they served the rabbi, their teacher. So they would be responsible for taking care of money issues, um, as Judas was in the group of disciples. They would be responsible often for preparing food. That's why you hear the disciples often saying, Jesus, have you had something to eat? Because their job was to care for him while he provided spiritual leadership. Okay, so there were actual rules that governed the the nature of these disciples and what they could be asked to do. And one of the old ancient uh, Jewish laws said that the disciple must serve the rabbi in every way, all the way up until the the loosening of the thong of his sandals. Okay, and what that meant is that the the rab or the uh, disciples were intended to serve the rabbi in all sorts of different ways, but there was a line that they stopped at, and that line was removing the rabbi's shoes to wash their feet. That was that was considered something that was a little bit too dirty and too low even for the disciples to be required to do. Now maybe disciples did it from time to time, but it wasn't required by law if they were the disciple of a rabbi. So you can understand what this is all about and how, how there's this, this cultural reality of, of someone who would do the foot washing being a pretty low, uh, pretty low on the social hierarchy in this society. Okay? And so, so we get to this story, and apparently uh, when, when they enter into this room, there is no servant present. There is no one to wash feet. And we're actually not told that anything happens right at the beginning. We're told that apparently nobody's there, nobody volunteers to wash feet, and so nobody does. And the evening kind of continues. And then we're told about what happens in the middle of the meal. Really interesting. Middle of the meal. Okay. Um, It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go back to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the end. This is the beginning of chapter 13. The evening meal was already in progress, okay? Meal was already in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let's pause there for a moment. I want you to notice the intentionality of what just happened. Jesus did this during the middle of the meal. It was not something of, oh shoot, there's nobody to wash feet. I better take care of this. This was while the meal was going on, Jesus is reflecting and he decides to do something incredibly important, incredibly noticeable, incredibly symbolic for his disciples. Okay? Really, really important. He came to Simon Peter, who, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Meaning, this is not okay, <laughs> right? You're going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing. Important statement. You don't realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. So Peter gets all, all up in a tizzy about it and says, never. And I'm going to paraphrase what, what happens next for a little bit. And Jesus says, actually, you, you have no part in me unless I wash your feet. And then Peter, being the ever overachiever, says, well, then wash all of me. Like, give me a bath if this is what it's about. Like, Peter never fully comprehends anything until after the fact. And Jesus says, hold on, you've had a bath. You, 
that's that's not necessary. What's necessary is only to wash feet. The rest of the body is already clean. And he goes on, and then there's there's some subtle statements about about Judas or or some thoughts about Judas, but we're not going to get into that. Here we go. When he had finished washing their feet, this is in verse twelve, and we can throw this up um, on on the the screen just so that you can read it along with us. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to the place, uh, to his place. And you can imagine right now, friends, that that there is a lot of silence outside of Peter's outburst, a lot of silence, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of discomfort for the rabbi to be taking this role and this position. And so there's a lot of silence. Everyone's just kind of watching Jesus. So he finally finishes. He dries himself off. He puts his cloak back on, comes over, sits down. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asks. So here's our question. Do you understand what I have done for you? It's an important question for us to sit with, because if we don't, we miss that Jesus asks the clarifying question here. Do you get this? Jesus does not want them to miss it. It's so important that he does something. And then instead of just moving on, he goes back and he says, hey, by the way, do you understand what just happened? Because it's a big deal. And the it's a big deal for a, a number of reasons. We tend to think it's a big deal for one reason. I want to broaden that and help us think creatively about this in just a couple minutes. But he says, do you understand what I have done for you? He does give clarification then immediately afterwards. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. So he's saying, you, 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 you look at me with authority. You give me authority. You call me teacher and Lord. You honor me. You understand my role. And that's true. That's correct. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set for you, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So he says, Remember, you know this, you know, but no, no servant is greater than his master. And so what he is saying is not about rank. It's the opposite. He's saying, if this, if, if I'm able to do this, you're not above me. You're not above this sort of behavior, this sort of action. So don't think you are. In fact, you'll be blessed if you learn how to imitate me in this way. Okay, so... Um, so, so here's what we want to do. That question, do you understand what I have done for you, is the thing that we're going to dive into. And, and the thing is that, that the answer, or this, this question itself, is a narrow question in some ways about servanthood. But it's also a broad question about understanding the very nature of God and God's kingdom. And that's why this is important. So we are going to ask this question. Do we understand what Jesus has done for us? Okay. Uh, and I want to talk about, I want to talk about a couple of ways that we probably obviously understand, but then some of the ways, some of the things that Jesus has done for us revealed in a passage like this that we often miss, or I, or maybe just don't give enough value to when we look at the entire scripture. So, so the, the first, the first thing, do we understand what Jesus has done for us? The first thing is, is what comes most obvious when we read this passage. What he's done for us um, is, 
um, he's given us an example to serve. An example to follow. And that example is to serve one another, to wash one another's feet. Jesus knew that a servant heart, an attitude of, of desiring to care for one another in humility, was the key to unity in the church. It was the key to being formed in the image of Jesus himself. And it was the antidote to conflict. He knew that, that when they would butt heads in some way or another, <clears throat> if there was a desire to serve one another, then there would be a desire to listen, to understand, and to reconcile. He knew that imitating one another, being willing to make themselves low and wash one another's feet, would be a key to maintaining the core identity of what it meant to be the church. He knew that it would keep the church together, and he knew that it would keep... Um, the disciples on track. And the reason is because the self, the ego, the pride within us is, is what tears almost all relationships apart. Okay. And so, so when we move toward servanthood, toward this example of servanthood and away from our own egos, we're told that the disciples in this exact same time frame were fighting about who was the greatest at the table, who would, who would be the highest ranked in Jesus's mind with him, who would sit at his right hand, that, which was the phrase of, of, of being the most important, the second in command behind Jesus. This was what they were worried about. This is the ranking system that was going on. And Jesus says, I'm giving you a completely different way of doing things. And it moves you away from the focus on you and getting what you want, getting what you think you deserve, getting above the next person in line. And instead it moves you to the opposite position. And that's where love flourishes and community develops. So so that's important, but that's actually nothing new. He's pretty explicit about that, right? If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you should wash one another's feet. Um, and we can take that as literally or, or symbolically as we want, but we know it's intended to be symbolic in terms of the overall impact. Okay, so the second thing, however, and again, this is probably one that we would pick up, but, um, but the, the second thing, do we understand what Jesus has done for us in a passage like this? Um, the, the second thing is really, it's, um, it's, it's about the atonement. It's, it's about Jesus laying down his life for us. This, this whole story on this weekend, on the weekend that Jesus would be crucified, the story of Jesus bending a knee and caring and serving his, his disciples in this way was a, a, um, a precursor, a foreshadowing of the ultimate impact of the servanthood of Christ, which was to lay down his life. So there's a messianic element to all of this foot washing experience. Um, in, in John 10, only a few chapters earlier, Jesus is using the image of shepherding and he says, I am the good shepherd. Um, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Okay. Um, in, in Matthew 20, in verse 28, Jesus says that he came into the world to serve rather than be served. It's not just an example. It's about Jesus as the Messiah and what he was going to do. And to serve, according to Jesus, is to love. And to love, according to Jesus, in John 15, Jesus says, Love has no one greater than this, uh, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So the intention is love in its fullness is life-giving, self-sacrificing. 
So we are intended to see that in this moment, Jesus is showing them how much he loves them, and that love will culminate in dying to destroy the power of sin and death and to restore the relationship and open doors in new mystical ways to communion with God and to experience the fullness of God's kingdom. So all of that is in play during this, okay? When Jesus says, that, that he set us an example, but he's, he's uh, when I have done this, we're intended to look da- back later and say the ultimate act of servanthood was God laying God's own life down for the sake of his creation. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute um, with the final thing. But, uh, but let's keep going because those two are, are, again, things that are maybe the most common to pick up on, okay? But the, the third thing I think that... Uh, that when Jesus says, do you understand what I've done? If we look at this and sit with this and grow in our maturity in Christian faith, we realize that he's doing so much more than just teaching us to serve. He's also teaching us to receive. Oh, if I can get it right. It's EI, right? He's, he's teaching us to receive with humility in a moment like this. This one's really often overlooked, friends. Um, my, one of my closest friends for, for years, he was a, a co-pastor with me at the last church that I worked at in, in central Pennsylvania. Um, and, and he moved with his family to Bangladesh to serve in the slums um, with some of the poorest people in the world. And they came back a few years ago and then actually moved to London to a Bengali community to uh, among some of the poor, uh, an immigrant community um, on the outskirts of London that, that speak the same language that he and his family learned um, in Bangladesh. And he, he sent, uh, in his newsletter this week, he sent us a little story. And the newsletter was titled, Blessed are those who receive, for they shall feel awkward. And he told a story about taking his kids out to the playground down the street. There's this old beat-up playground on the corner um, in the city that they live in. And as they were doing so, um, he noticed that... Uh, that there was this man walking down the street kind of in a hurried way toward the grocery store and he was clutching uh, a chocolate bar, a Cadbury chocolate bar, a purple, purple wrapped chocolate bar in his hand against his chest. And as he looked at him closer, he recognized that a few weeks ago he had met this man. Um, he called him um, Danaby. That's not his real name, but that's, that's the name that he told in the story. And, and this man, Danaby, had been sitting outside um, a grocery store collecting change with a cup. Uh, asking asking for a loose change from people. And at that point, several weeks ago, Ben had sat down with him and asked him a little more about his story and learned. And in, in, in passing, they realized that they had a mutual friend, another missionary, who had been bringing clothing to Danaby on a regular basis. So there was a personal connection there. So they went on their way. So here comes Danaby walking down the street and Ben sees him and waves to him and Danaby comes over quickly and they have a conversation about how he's been doing and what's going on. Danaby was a musician and so Ben asked him, well, would you play something or would you sing something for me? So he, he was singing a song uh, about the brokenness of his own life and, and suffering. And as he's doing that, uh, Ben's children run over to him and say, hey, daddy, can we have a snack? We really want our snack now. And before Ben has a chance to grab a snack out of his bag, Danaby takes his um, chocolate bar and thrusts it into, into Ben's son's hands. And he says, make sure you share this with your brother. And in that moment, Ben talked about the difficulty of, of the deep urge within him to say, no, 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 please, we can't possibly accept that. 
And then he reflected on it, and here's what he wrote. He said, why is it so hard to receive something from the poor? Why is it so hard to receive, period? I wondered about this as I watched Danaby set back off toward the next grocery store. And I immediately identified with the Apostle Peter at the Last Supper, saying to Jesus, No, you shall never wash my feet. I love you and I want to serve you, not vice versa. Yes, Jesus was teaching us to serve one another, but he was also teaching us to receive. Doing so requires humility, and this is hard. The, the reality of, of receiving and how difficult it is, is so challenging because it often upsets the power structure that we have and that we cling to in our world. It's uncomfortable to be treated um, more importantly, interestingly, than a superior, but it's also uncomfortable when someone below us in our modern day caste system wants to bless or serve us. They're deserving of our pity, right? Um, not... Not, uh, not supposed to give us stuff that makes us feel weird. Why does that make us feel strange? It's because, you know, because we can't be served by someone that we might see as being underneath us, right? The whole time-space continuum is going to be ripped apart if that happens. The world works in a certain way. And that way relies on power rankings. That way relies on seeing some people as above us and some people as beneath us. And there are certain roles that each of those people are called to play in, in reference to the rest of those people. Okay? And this is why Jesus is always saying that we are not of the world. Because it functions based on a false premise of value and of dignity and of merit. See, we can talk all day long about how important it is for us to follow the example of servanthood, but if you can't receive somebody serving you, you have not matured as a disciple yet. Because what you're saying is, I want to have the gift of being able to serve and be blessed like Jesus told me I would be when I serve, and there is deep blessing in laying your life down for other people. But, but I can't give you that gift. You see that? Like, it's beneath me to be served almost. So we have to learn that that's not the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom is this give and take beautiful mutuality that comes from understanding that Jesus is calling <clears throat> is for all of us to serve one another and there has to be someone on the other end. So we have to be willing to receive when someone wants to bless us or when we are actually in need in some way. And that cannot be based on ranking. That cannot be based on our perceived worth compared to somebody else so that we don't want someone else to have to deal with serving us. We're taking a gift away. That's false humility, and it needs to be done away with as Christ followers. So it's complex to learn the way of, of, Peter's, uh, of Jesus' statement to Peter and says, let me serve you. Let me love you in this way. You think it's beneath me, but let me tell you, it's not. You can't learn the way of the kingdom unless you let me serve you. So this whole, <clears throat> this whole world of, of power dynamics leads us um, directly into the next element of, of asking this question, what has Jesus done? Do you understand what I've done for you, Jesus says. So, so what has Jesus done for us? Well, in this story, here's a thing that we almost always overlook. And that is... Um, That he gives value to the invisible. This is so crucial. Um, this is about who matters and about Jesus reframing it. And I just touched on that a little bit with receiving. But Jesus teaches us 
about the value of every person. Here's the thing. There was no servant, I just said, right, in the upper room to wash the feet upon the entrance of the disciples in Jesus. If there had been, and if that servant had washed their feet, we never would have heard about that. It wouldn't have been a story in the Gospels. Why? Because the servant was insignificant in that role. It happened at all of these other meals that Jesus was at. All of these banquets at the tax collectors and the Pharisees' houses, they would have all had a foot washing as they entered into that room, and we never heard about it at all because those people were invisible. The slaves were invisible. Okay? It, it, um, they, were, they were seen as beneath, so they didn't even get a story, a sentence in the story. So I want you to think about this from a different angle. My own past, one of my first jobs was a busboy at a restaurant um, in the city of Harrisburg in Pennsylvania. And uh, as a busboy, or as a busser, I was at the mercy of the wait staff. So they took all the orders and brought out all the food, and I would just clean up all the time. I wasn't qualified for wait staff, and I didn't have the right connections at the restaurant to get that job. So I got the lower job as the busboy. And so um, I was, if, if they wanted to tip me, then they could, or they couldn't. I made $2 more than they did per hour. But in a few hours, they would bring in $150 in tips and they might give me 5 or $10 at the end of that night. Um, so busing is rough and it can be discouraging. Uh, but imagine one day, imagine one day that you're in this position, right? That's your job, like mine. And you walk in and you get ready to start work and the owner of the restaurant is nearby. And right before you get to work, okay, she sees you and she grabs the towel off of your shoulder and, and she says, you know what? Take an extra five minutes. I got it for a bit. And, and she, the owner of the restaurant, proceeds to wipe down tables, proceeds to clear out half-empty glasses with pasta sauce on her thumbs as she grabs the edge of the plates and takes them back to the kitchen. How does that make you feel in that moment? She's the owner and she's willing to play your role. That gives you dignity. The wait staff notice it. That means that you're seen. Your job, your role, your place is not too low for her to stoop. That makes such a difference in understanding who is valuable in the eyes of the owner. Jesus takes on the least important role, the most invisible person in the room. And he places himself there. He redeems it. He changes how we look at people who might otherwise be beneath us, right? Weaker than us. And we'd never use those words, but we do it in our heads all the time, right? We never admit that we look at people like that. But I'm telling you, if the disciples were paying attention to this story, looking closely, they would have never seen the person who washes their feet in the same way again. They would never overlook them and ignore that person. Now, we have all sorts of ways of looking down at others in our society and, and even in our faith, right? Maybe I hear someone who's really young and really passionate in their simple faith, right? And my temptation might be to look slightly down my, my very prominent nose at them and, and say, well, just, just you wait until you face the fires and the questions of a difficult faith. Just you wait until your easy answers don't get resolved just like that. My faith is much more complex. We watch Jesus washing feet. 
and we get reoriented to our attitudes about other people. We get reoriented to our attitudes about the, the, the places that, and the stations that we put people in in our minds, about their importance because of their job, because of their income level, because of their backgrounds, because of their ethnicity, because of anything in their story. Some of the women I met in India last year when I traveled there, they will live and they will die. And except for a bit of God's providence, a few years ago, we would never even know them or their names. And yet they are some of the deepest people of faith. They are some of the most powerful people of prayer that our planet has. And the $50 that we gave them as a Christmas gift and the $200 loan that we gave them to start their micro businesses, that is the largest single amount of money that they have ever seen or held in their entire lives. And they are the greatest in the kingdom of God. The greatest in the kingdom of God. And we have Christian apologists who've created careers speaking to hundreds of thousands of people about Jesus, all while intentionally using their power to exploit and prey on women for years and years. The least in the kingdom of God. Power and influence is not as it looks, friends. We cannot circumnavigate this whole story and say, I'm going to lead powerfully from the top without getting ourselves into trouble. We need to see the world through the lens of the one who humbly serves or else we will be deceived by a lust for power and for influence and for ranking that will destroy our faith and look nothing like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12.22 says that the weakest and the least presentable in our society are the ones who are most indispensable to the church. Just think about that. This story is a reminder that we are desperately desperately in need of the presence of those who have disability, the presence of those who are poor, the presence of those who feel like outsiders, who feel broken and messed up in some way. We need them to teach us about Jesus in ways that we haven't yet learned. And then our final thing, and this is the culmination of everything that we've been looking at here. Um, is that when Jesus says, do you understand what I've done? He's reorienting us to God's nature. Do you understand what I've done for you? Do we really understand this? The whole conversation um, that, uh, that continues that night in John 13, uh, it leads up to Jesus speaking about being betrayed. Okay, and, and in the midst of it, Judas ends up leaving and going out into the night. All right, Jesus already knew this and chose at a certain point in the evening to wash all of the disciples' feet. And he knew that one day, well, first of all, he knew that he was washing the, the feet of the disciples who would betray, but also desert him. And he knew that one day his disciples would look back on that night, knowing and understanding that Jesus knew all of that and still chose to wash his disciples' feet before it happened. To wash his disciples' feet, to wash the feet of his betrayer only hours before he was betrayed. He did it knowing that that would happen. 
This reorients us about the character of God over and over again. That this character of God, who is this enemy-loving, other-oriented, sacrificial, parental God. God's character is about suffering for the sake of love, of choosing to continue with blessing even when cursed. This is what Jesus was coming to reveal, a God that looks like Christ. A God who does not use authority to take, but to give. Will we learn this? As Jesus people, will we keep repenting how far we've strayed from this character of Christ and this nature of God himself? We have to keep doing the work to understand what God's nature is all about and what stories like this tell us about it. This passage means a lot to me personally. I grew up in a tradition where we practiced this symbolic action literally once a year during a church-wide brethren love feast, we called it, or that's what it had been called for 200 years. And I remember when maybe I was 11 or 12, um, sitting beside Harold Brenneman, and Harold was one of the elders in our church, and, uh, and he was sitting beside me that night. And when the time came, I remember when he d- knelt down as um, on, on his 60-something-year-old knees, right? And he washed the feet of this scrawny kid whose knee had been bouncing the entire time through all of those prayers and all of those hymns that happened leading up to that point that night. And he didn't care. He was humble. He valued me in that community before I even really understood how radical something like that was. It was one of the ways that I met Jesus in my childhood. And it wasn't the foot washing itself, it was the heart and the character and the value that was given to me as a child even. You see, this and is so much more than Jesus just setting an example. Yes, we should serve each other, but we have to see that this is about God remaking the world making himself low and embracing humility in such a way that communicated something about all of reality. Jesus was saying, do you realize I have made a way for you to be free from the endless one-upmanship of the world around you? Do you realize that I have made a way for you to be freed from the toxic understandings of power and influence? Do you realize I have saved you from misunderstanding the kingdom of God? Ah, and I have rescued you forever by serving you, by laying my life down for you. No amount of force, no amount of insightful teaching could have had the same impact that that moment had in the upper room. Jesus lived an embodied faith, a, a faith that, was, that came out of his hands and out of his feet and out of his actions and out of the places and people that he walked to and with. It was so much more than this system of beliefs in his head. It was an embodied faith. The dominant power that he challenged and sacrificed his life for an embodied faith that took all of who he was. He teaches us here and he asks us, do you understand what I've done for you? Please understand what I have done for you. And when we let this take root in us, all of these things that Jesus has done for us, it will change how we live today. It'll change the nature of our spirits. It will change the actions that we do and it will change how we see the people around us. And we will begin living more and more in the kingdom of God now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, oh, we acknowledge um, that it can be hard to serve. 
It can be hard to let you serve us. It can be hard to let others serve us. It can be hard to grasp the truth of your whole kingdom. It can be hard not to look down on others. It can be hard to see things the way you do, but we want to. We want to let stories like this change us. We want to understand what you are doing on every single level here. And so if this is just a fresh chance for each of us to, to say again, I surrender, I am willing. Lord, help me be a servant to you. Help me live fully and be served by you. Uh, then, Lord, open the door once again to our hearts so that we might be set right and set on the right life path as we walk forward. So thanks, Lord, for your faithfulness as we continue this journey of discipleship. And thanks that we're not alone to do it. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.